Now, as we come to the book of Joshua, I think probably that we should begin proper back at the last part of the book of Deuteronomy, at the 34th chapter. As I suggested before, it is the belief of a great many scholars that the last part of Deuteronomy, that is, of this last chapter that tells of the death and burial of Moses, was written by Joshua. And there's good evidence for that. You ask me what the evidence is. Well, it's the very first word that opens the book of Joshua. Now, our translation has it, now after the death of Moses. Actually, it should be, and after the death of Moses. So that an and is a very interesting word. The minute that a speaker says and, he's got to keep talking. Because and connects something that's gone before with something that's coming after. And very frankly, I feel that this here connects with the last part of the book of Deuteronomy. And therefore, the death and the burial of Moses was apparently recorded by Joshua. That's not essential to believe for the very simple reason. It would have been very easy for Moses to have recorded it because a great many folk write out their own funeral service, and it's generally followed. I know I followed that many, many times. And actually, a person is making a decision before they die what takes place. Moses could have done it, but there's no reason to follow that line of thinking when this seems to me to be more satisfactory. Now, as we come then to the book of Joshua, we find, and after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying. Now, we come to Joshua and here is another individual that it'll be well for us to get acquainted with. Actually, Joshua was the successor to Moses. Now, here would be a very profitable study for you if you'd like to pursue it. That is, great many people do not seem to realize how prominent Joshua has already been in the book of Deuteronomy. He's been mentioned several times before. You will recall that Joshua was the one that took the army and led the army at the time they fought the Amalekites. And he was the general at that time. Also, this man Joshua is one of the spies with Caleb who brought back a favorable report. Now, these are only two references. I think that if you'll check back, you'll find at least eight or ten I would suggest you get a good concordance, look up the word Joshua, and then check those references. You'd be amazed at how prominent Joshua has already been. So it wasn't strange or unusual or a shock or a surprise that Joshua was the one that follows this man Moses. But it's rather unusual because he is... Not an unusual man, but a very usual one. In fact, a very ordinary individual. Now, the Talmud says that Joshua wrote all but the last five verses and that these were written by Phineas. Now, that is of the book of Joshua because the book of Joshua actually closes with the death of Joshua. And again, you have the problem that Joshua write that. Well, very frankly, I'm of the opinion, again, that Phineas did write the last few verses, probably the last five verses of the book of Joshua, because these books in that day were not separate volumes as they are today. They were scrolls that rolled up, and after the five books of the Bible were written, then Joshua comes along and his book is just rolled right on the same scroll and then right on it would be the next book, the book of Judges. So what we have here is something that would come about rather naturally as the division in the books were made by men later on. And we could quite easily understand that they made the division maybe at the wrong place. That I do not think is such an important problem after all, and yet a great deal has been made out of it in the past. 
Now, Joshua, his name means Jehovah is salvation. And it actually is the same word that's in the New Testament that is Jesus. In fact, you will find in Hebrews 4, 8, that Joshua there is translated Jesus. Now, Joshua was a great general, and he was born a slave in Egypt. He was 40 years old at the time of the Exodus, and as we've seen, one of the spies. But he figured prominently in other things. You find out he went with Moses into the tabernacle when God appeared at that time, so that this man was prepared to take Moses' place. Moses was twice as old as he was. Moses was 80 years old at the time of the Exodus, and Joshua was 40 years old. Now, he was 80 years old, though, when he received his commission. Moses was 80 when he led the Exodus out of Egypt, and Joshua was 80 years old when he led them into the land. And he was 110 years old at his death, 10 years younger than Moses was. Now, he was a man of prayer. He was a man of courage. He was a man of dependence upon God. He was a man of faith. He had leadership, enthusiasm, and fidelity. And he is a type of Christ in both name and the work. Yet Joshua was really an average man. Dr. Blackwood has said this concerning Joshua. It shows that a man of average ability may become a leader in the church. He received his call not in flaming letters across the sky, but from an old man who knew God and knew Joshua and saw that he was fitted by God to be a leader. And very frankly, this man is a very remarkable man in many ways as we are going to see as we move into this book here. Now, just a word about the book that we're coming to. Actually, the book of Joshua completes the redemption that was begun in Exodus. The book of Exodus is the book of redemption out of Egypt. The book of Joshua is the redemption into the promised land. In other words, salvation is not only a redemption from hell, it is a redemption to heaven. And justification not only means the subtraction of our sins here, but the addition of the righteousness of Christ up yonder. And it's put like this by Paul in Romans, who was delivered for our offenses, raised again for our justification. Now, if the second book of the Bible should be called Exodus, then this one should be, to coin a new word, should be called Isodus. And by the way, that's my own idea, and therefore you can forget it. But I think it'd be nice to have these two books, Exodus and Isodus. Now, we are going to find that the book of Joshua is a very interesting book, and I'd like right at the very beginning to make this clear because it's going to be helpful to you. The old interpretation, or the one that was so popular, I don't think it's quite as popular now, was that the promised land was heaven. That is, it represented heaven. It was a type of heaven. And that Joshua is the one that leads them into heaven. And that it's the promised land, land of milk and honey is a picture of heaven. Some of the old songs, you know, give that impression. The land of milk and honey, blessed. Well, hallelujah, that's great. The only thing is that I do not think the promised land represents heaven. It represents the place that believers are brought to right down here in this world today. You say, why do you think that? Because we'll find in the book of Joshua that when they got into the promised land, there were battles to be fought, there was conflict, and there was conquest, and that they had to fight battles, they had to lay hold of these things. Now, that's not true of heaven. Heaven's not a place of conflict, and it's not a place of conquest. Heaven as a gift of the grace of God. But friends, you and I have been redeemed down here, 
and we're blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. And therefore, the book of Joshua in the Old Testament compares to the epistle to the Ephesians in the New Testament, and we'll see that as we go along. It is prophetic of Israel for the future, because they'll come into that land in great blessing in the future. And it's also typical of the church. And you and I can live in the wilderness, or we can live in that land. We enter into that land, as we shall see, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we've been brought into the heavenlies. We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies today, but we're to lay hold of them. We'll have more to say about that as we get into this book. Now, I think the best thing to do is to get into the book of Joshua. And we have here in the very first chapter this theme, the commission and command of Joshua. And in the first 12 chapters, we're talking about the land entered. And in chapters 12 through 21, the land divided. And then you have the last message of Joshua 23 and 24. Now we have here the land entered, and we have the commission and command of Joshua. And the great theme of Joshua is possession. Oh, hold on to that. That's so important to see, and we'll see what that means in just a moment. Possession is the most important word. Now, I read a moment ago verse 1. Now let me move down and read verse 2 of chapter 1. He says, Moses, my servant, is dead. As we said in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is not essential. Moses could not lead them into the land. Moses represents the law. The law cannot save us. The law is not a redeemer. The law is a revealer. It shows that we are sinners. It is never a savior. And Moses could not lead them into the land because of failure. And the problem was not with the law, but the problem was with Moses, as the problem is with us today. The law reveals that you and I have fallen short of the glory of God. Moses, my servant, is dead. Only Joshua, Jesus, our Jesus, today can lead us into the promised land. Now, therefore, arise. Go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Now, let's notice this. The land was given to them, and Israel's ownership was unconditional. God promised it to Abraham and his offspring, and he reaffirmed it and again reaffirmed it in the book of Genesis. Then you will find out, as we saw in the book of Deuteronomy, God made a covenant, the Palestinian covenant, that the land is given to them as everlasting possession. But, now wait just a minute, Israel's possession was conditional. Now, will you notice this? And I'm reading now verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. Now, this is very important for us to note here. God says here that he gives them the land, and the land is theirs, but their enjoyment of it and their possession of it depends upon the fact that every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, it's yours. But you've got to go get it. Now today, if I may refer again to the epistle to the Ephesians, we are told that we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. And these spiritual blessings are ours. But how many Christians are enjoying these today? Comparatively speaking, very few They are not laying hold of these great spiritual blessings that are ours. I've told the story before. I'll tell it again, because there's some folks tell me I ought to repeat more. I don't like to do it, but here goes, that I have a clipping. We'll use it when we get to Ephesians, of a man that was in Chicago. 
and Scotland Yard had come from England to find him. He was not a criminal. Actually, this man was an heir to about a $5 million tea estate. His uncle had died, and they couldn't find him. They knew he was somewhere in the United States. They were sure, almost sure he was in Chicago, and they were sure that he was a bum, and they expected to find him in some of the cheap hotels. They looked for him. They didn't find him. And here was a man, an heir to $5 million, and yet he was staying in two-bit rooms at night and actually sleeping in the doorway. I never heard how that came out till afterward, and I was telling the story, and a lady from Chicago came up to me, and she said, Dr. McGee, did you ever hear how that worked out? And I said, no, I never knew. She said, well, they found him, but they found him one morning, dead, frozen to death in an entranceway, a doorway to one of those cheap hotels. He couldn't even pay the 25 cents. He had $5 million. I said to that lady, I said, that's a tragedy to have $5 million and then not be able to pay 25 cents for a room. You know what was wrong? He didn't claim it. He didn't lay hold of it. It was his. Israel owned that land, and they never got all of it. In fact, the matter is they got very little of it. Well, they'd have to walk up and down and lay hold of the land, although God had given it to them. It was theirs as an eternal possession. But if they are to possess it and to enjoy it and get the fruits of it and rejoice in it, why, they must tread upon it. They must go into that land and walk up and down. How are they to walk up and down? They were to lay hold of it, wrest it from an enemy and a living from the soil, which they did, by the way. But did they do it or did God do it? Well, you have in Ephesians for us, Paul says, I beseech you as a prisoner of the Lord that ye walk worthy of the high calling wherewith you're called. Now, if you and I today are going to possess our spiritual possessions, why, we must walk according to the way God has outlined it for us, it must be in lowliness and meekness with long-suffering, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, and then to recognize that it is only what God does in and through us that is important, that counts. Therefore, we ought to be able to say, as Joshua was, and as the psalmist David said in Psalm 115:1, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. And today we do not get the victory. He gets the victory. It's possessions that we get. The spiritual blessings become ours when the victory is his. Now again, Paul said to a young preacher, It's not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he shed abundantly on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, "...by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God." not of works, lest any man should boast. And Hebrews 11, 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out unto a place, which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. He went out, not knowing whether he went. Now, he could still be in Ur of the Chaldees and say he believed God, and it wouldn't amount to anything, because his words would be idle words, meaningless words. The way that you reveal your faith is by your action, that is, as far as this world is concerned. Abraham, he moved out. He obeyed God. And that, my friend, is what it means to trust God, is to cast yourself upon him. Now, this man Joshua, he believes God. God's encouraging him and tells him now to step out. And that which is to be his authority will be the Word of God. It's not to depart out of his mouth. He should meditate in it. And the third thing, he's to do according as it is written. And so 
That is the formula of faith. That is the method. If there is a method, that is it. And so we have before us here this man now stepping out in a very marvelous, wonderful way. Today, Christians are blessed with all spiritual blessings, and yet some of them die like a bum up in a doorway when they could enter in and lay hold of great spiritual blessings. What a tragedy it is. Well, this book's going to tell us how to lay hold of those possessions, friends, because there's a conflict in the book of Ephesians. We're told something about that conflict. We're told there that we're to put on the whole armor of God. Why? Well, because we've got an enemy, friends, and I mean a real enemy, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's not our enemy today. Ours is a spiritual enemy. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, you've got to have on the whole armor of God. And their victory has to be won. You and I don't get the victory. He gets the victory. The Lord Jesus does. And what we get is what Israel got, deliverance and possession. God gave them every victory that they got. They never won a one of them themselves. God gave it to them. If you and I ever win a victory, we won't win a victory. He has to win it. But he'll win it for us if we will, by faith, enter into these wonderful possessions. Now notice verse 4, "...from the wilderness..." And this Lebanon, even under the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and under the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. Now, in our notes that we are sending out on Joshua, I have in that a map. And it shows you the land that they did possess. But it doesn't show you all of it. It merely shows you the position of each tribe the twelve tribes in that land. And none of them ever penetrated beyond their limited borders. In other words, God gave to them 300,000 square miles. And the best they ever did was 30,000 square miles. They didn't do very well, did they? About a tenth of what God had promised to them. And today, that's just about what most of us as believers get as our spiritual possession. Now, he says here to Joshua, "...there shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I'll not fail thee, nor forsake thee." Now, this man, this average man, Joshua, he needed actually to be encouraged. And God encourages him here in a most wonderful way, you see. He tells him here that this is to be your portion. I won't desert you, God says. Just as I was with Moses, I'll be with you. Now, twice here he says to him, Be strong and of a good courage, for under this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. That notice, be strong and of a good courage. Verse 7, Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Well, may I say again, God encourages him. Now, notice there's something new that is introduced here that's very important for us to see. All important, by the way. Notice, he says now, this book of the law. You remember God appeared to Moses, and he led him that way. See, there was no written Scripture until Moses. Now they are not to be led by dreams or appearances. They're to be led by the Word of God primarily. This book of the law, number one, shall not depart out of thy mouth. Number two, thou shalt meditate therein day and night. And third, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Now, God had given them all they needed to know to enter the land. 
Therefore, they are not to depart from the written word. They'll meditate in it, and they are to observe to do it. These are the three things. Now, again, he says to them, Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. So this man is to take the word of God in one hand and a sword in the other, by the way. And he is to move out by faith and be strong and courageous. Now we come to verse 10. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying... Now, will you notice he took charge, by the way. This man Joshua, he didn't do it in presumption, I do not think, but he did it in confidence. He commanded the officers of the people. Why? Because God has told him. And God had said to Moses, you'll recall, God says, I will be with you. You remember when he went down into the land of Egypt after being in Midian? It was with a little fear. But God says to him, I'll be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. That's God's method. And God said to Jeremiah when he called him, in a difficult, dark day, they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee, for I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. And certainly you could say, as the psalmist said, the Lord is my helper. Confidence in God and courage against man. That's the thing that characterized Joshua now. God says, I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. And we're told that there are exceeding great and precious promises for us today. And we can say, it's in Hebrews 13, 6, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I'll not fear what man can do unto me. We need this kind of conviction and courage today that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. You see, when David first said that, he turned his mind and heart away from that which was seen to that which was unseen. It means that he became occupied with the living and true God. And it means that he recognized and realized the spiritual bond was between him and the Lord as had been said to him by another, you are wrapped up in the bundle of life with God. David now can say, the Lord's my helper. He is the one that can deliver me. So this man Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, pass through the host. Command the people, saying, prepare you victuals, For within three days ye shall pass over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God giveth you to possess it. Now, the thought that we have suggested, it's in our notes, is that it's possession. That is the great theme of this book. It's the key word. It's the most important one, possession. Israel's ownership to that land was unconditional, but Israel's possession of it was conditional. They had to go in and take it. Now, someone has said the key word, is victory. I don't think so. God gets the victory, and Israel gets deliverance and possession. What a wonderful thing that was. You're to go in now and possess the land. But now there's something else I want you to note here that you might pass over. You're going to find that a little later on, when they got into the land, the manna ceased, and they had to depend on the old corn of the land. It's what they captured, actually, because it was old corn. They didn't have a chance to grow it. Now, you have here an interval between the time the manna ceased till they got the old corn. Well, what did they get? Well, they got what was on the land. They were actually now living on the land, and God says for them to prepare victuals for three days. Now, it couldn't have been manna because that did not last but one day, you see. They had to gather it every morning. That's the reason we're told in Scripture, 
in Ephesians, by the way, to be filled with the Spirit. That's not a one-time job. You don't go down to the filling station one time and tell the man at the filling station, fill her up, and then you seal the thing off because you say, I won't ever need any more gas. That'd be presumptuous. It would be foolish. be perfectly stupid. But there are a lot of Christians today think that they can have one experience and that's it. My friend, if you're going to walk with him and live for him, you'll need a daily filling of the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, I'm not sure but what you'll need it in the morning and in the evening. Well, wait just a minute. I fill up the physical man three times a day. And maybe I ought to fill up the spiritual man three times a day. It wouldn't hurt to wake up in the night and fill him again, because we need a constant filling of the Holy Spirit, of looking to him and resting upon him. Now, we come to something quite interesting here. In verse 12, we're told, "...and to the Reubenites and to the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh spake Joshua, saying..." Now, here are the two tribes, Reuben and Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, you'll recall that they had come to Moses, and they asked for land on the east side of the Jordan River. In other words, they were not to cross over. And they actually were asking for land on the wrong side of the Jordan River. Their possessions are on the wrong side. Now, a lot of believers are just like that today. We haven't got to the crossing of the Jordan yet. When we get to that, we're going to see a great spiritual truth. The crossing of the Jordan River is not our crossing in death into heaven. That's not it at all. When I stood on the banks of the Jordan River and I thought of that song, On Jordan's stormy banks, I stand and cast a wistful eye. You know, I had to laugh how utterly ridiculous that song really is. May I say to you, that's a muddy little stream where I was down at Jericho, it was a muddy little thing. Several of the group wanted to be baptized there. And I said, no, not me. I think you could catch every disease under the sun being baptized in that dirty water that is there. And somebody's going to say, my, you sir, being irreverent about that holy, sacred Jordan River. Well, friends, you can take a look at it for yourself, and there's nothing very attractive about it. Now, what does it speak of? It speaks of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And you and I possess our spiritual possessions through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is at the right hand of God. Now, that's what the writer Paul said to the Colossians. And I believe that that's the thing that believers need to do today, is to seek those things which are above. Now, you get that by crossing the Jordan River. Now, here are two and a half tribes. They didn't cross over. And there are a great many Christians today that are living the Christian life, not knowing that they've been buried with him, in his death and burial and resurrection, they do not reckon on it, and they do not yield themselves to him. Then they wonder what's wrong with their Christian life. Well, this is what's wrong with it, my friend. This is a rich section, you see. And Joshua says, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God hath given you rest and hath given you this land. Your wives and your little ones, your cattle, shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side Jordan. But ye shall pass before your brethren armed all the mighty men of valor and help them. In other words, the army of the two and a half tribes did have to cross over. They did have to enter in. Because you can't fight the Lord's battles, friends, without his victory. That is the thing. You have to put on the whole armor of God, you see. And that armor of God is Christ. 
That armor is his work of redemption for us. And that's the only way you're going to be able to fight. That's the great message that is there. But we're going to see that again. But when we get to the book of Judges, you're going to find out they made a big mistake in staying on the wrong side of the Jordan River. And you remember when Christ crossed the Sea of Galilee and he came to the country, the Gadarenes? What were they doing? They were in the pig business. You know, they started off on the wrong side of Jordan. A lot of Christians today in the pig business, and they ought to enter into the rest he's provided in his death and resurrection. That's in the book of Joshua here, by the way. Now, we come to chapter 2, and you are introduced now to a woman of a very shady character. She was a prostitute. Her name is Rahab, and she's labeled in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, actually among the heroes of faith. She's a heroine of faith. <laughs> and by faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she received the spies in faith. Now, I do not like to think of Hebrews 11 as heroes of faith. It puts emphasis on man, on humanity. I like to put the emphasis on faith. This is what faith did in all ages, under all circumstances, in the lives of men and women, and it means it can do the same thing for us, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Therefore, it's for us. Now, if God could have saved the harlot of Jericho, do you think he would have saved the mayor of the town or could have saved the mayor of the town? Well, I don't know. The mayor of the town could have been lots worse than Rahab. They are in some places. But the fact of the matter is, he could have saved the mayor of the town. I'm confident because he saved this woman. And how did he save her? By faith. The harlot Rahab perished not. And did you know she's in the genealogy of Christ? The New Testament opens with that genealogy. And you don't read down five verses in the New Testament till you come to this woman. She's very prominent, by the way. And how did she get in the genealogy of Christ? She got in by her faith. And we're going to see that as we enter this and then see the passage over Jordan. Let me begin reading in chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out of Chittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. Now, you'll notice that the two that are sent to spy, somebody says they did that before and they made a mistake. Well, they sent spies before to see if they could take the land. The spies are not being sent this time to see if they could. They're being sent to find out the best way to enter the land. They're going into the land. Again, in verse 1, "...and they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all the country." And the woman took the two men, hid them, and said thus, There came men unto me, but I know not whence they were. came to pass about the time of shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out, whether the man went, I know not. Pursue after them quickly, for ye shall overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof of the house, hid them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order upon the roof. And the men pursued after them the way to Jordan under the fords. And as soon as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. And before they were laid down, she came up unto them upon the roof. Now, this woman, she had faith, but she lied about that, friends. She told the king of Jericho an awful thing, but it was to protect these men. But she actually jeopardized her life. Now, why would she do that? Why would she put her life on the line like this? She didn't have to. And she's in a business, by the way, where anything goes. And she could have pursued any kind of conduct and gotten by with it. 
But notice what she's doing here. And she's jeopardizing her life. Why did she do it? I'm sure I'll get a letter from somebody that's going to raise the question. She certainly disobeyed the king and the authorities, and that we're told very definitely in Scripture that we are to obey the authorities and those that have the rule over us, and that we should do that. Well, that's true. Paul did say that, didn't he? That we are to be subject under the powers that be, and that we are to respect those that have the rule over us. And I believe that. But this woman Rahab didn't do that, though someone is going to say. No, she didn't do that at all. To begin with, I don't think you at the time that this experience took place, you'd quite call her a Christian. And certainly in the Old Testament, we wouldn't use that term anyway. But I don't think you'd call her a child of God until after this experience. So that would be one explanation. But to me, the one that I think has meaning for us today, what about the child of God? I believe that we are to obey the authorities, those that have the rule over us. And the fact of the matter is, the Christian should be the most law-abiding citizen that there is. But when the laws of a state conflict with God's revealed will, and it's clear, then the Christian has no choice but to obey the command of God, obey the Word of God, rather than man. And you will recall that uh, saying of God, whether he should obey man or God, why, they'd have to judge that he intended to obey God. And so that should be the attitude of the child of God today. Now, I think that we can get Rahab off that hook very easily, what she did. Now, will you notice that she comes to the man and reveals why she did this? What was the reason that she did this? And here opens up a tremendous field for us. What wonderful truth we have here, and it throws a sidelight on other issues today. I'll read verse 8. Before they were laid down, that is, the spies... And they're up on the roof now of Rahab's place, and they've been covered with stalks of flax. And she came up under them upon the roof, and she now makes her proposition to them. And this is it. She said unto the man, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. Now, she gives an insight into the thinking of the public at that time. Apparently, here is this great company of people, nomads of the desert, that have come in on the east bank of Jordan. And the word is out there coming into that land, and they're going to take that land. And believe me, the population is stirred up, and you can understand why. Now, Rahab said that she was, I guess, in a position to get all the gossip of what was being talked by the public, and she said that everybody's frightened because of it. Now, listen to verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when ye came out of Egypt, and what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side, Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. Now notice, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. Now, will you notice this? How long ago was that? Well, that happened 40 years before they arrived at the Jordan River, friends. Forty years have gone by. And in that 40 years, what was taking place? God was giving these people in that land an opportunity to turn to God. You say, how do you know that? I know that because you will recall that God said to Abraham, I'll have to put your offspring out of this land. I can't give it to them now, 
for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And that was to be 420 years later. In other words, God was going to give those people 420 years to decide whether they would turn to God. Now, he kept his people. He very frankly told them that he kept them in that wilderness. Remember, Moses told them, God has kept us in this wilderness and has not let us enter that land. On our part, it's because of our unbelief on God's part. He didn't bring us in immediately at the time because he's giving those people in that land an opportunity to see if they'll turn to God. Now, the critic today says it's so horrible, uncivilized, and cruel, and barbarian, and the God of the Old Testament is a great big bully, and he went in there arbitrarily, and he slew the people in that land. Now, I have a question to ask the liberal today, and my question is, God gave them first 420 years. They didn't turn to God. Now, in my book, that's long enough. Then he enforced it by giving them 40 years and let them hear a message. Here come a people into that land. What are you going to do, receive them or resist them? Are you going to believe God or are you not going to believe God? God did not destroy a people that had not heard about him. He gave them ample opportunity to turn to himself. And my question is, How much longer, Mr. Critic, do you think God should have given them? He gave them 420 years. Would you think that 421 years would have been better? Maybe 422 years would have shown that he was big-hearted and that he was gracious with them. Would it take that? Well, the fact of the matter is, friends, 420 years was ample opportunity for them to turn. And the last 40 years, they had every reason to believe because they had heard something. And God would not destroy them unless they'd heard something. And they had to make up their mind. Now, God hasn't changed in the New Testament. He's made it very clear that those that reject Jesus Christ are going to hell. Isn't that awful to say that in this very civilized society? that you and I live in today when we poo-poo things like that. But that's what he says, friends. Now, I'm sure that when that comes to pass, that there are going to be some soft-hearted and soft-headed folk on the sideline that are going to say, well, he should have given them more time. More time? My friends, 1,900 years have gone by, and God is patient today, and he's slow to anger and he's merciful. How much longer do you want him to give us? How much longer should he give a person? He's giving the world ample opportunity. The harlot says, we have heard. Now notice something else, verse 11. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man Because of you, for the Lord your God, he's God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now, not only did they hear something, they knew it was true. Now, there are a great many people today, they know that it's a historical fact that Jesus Christ died, buried, and rose again, but they're not saved. What saves you? It's to trust him, friend. It's to have a personal relationship with him. That's the thing that is important. Now, listen, that's not all she said. Verse 12, Now therefore I pray you swear unto me by the Lord, since I've showed you kindness, that ye will show kindness unto my father's house, and give me a true token, and that ye will save alive my father and my mother, my brethren, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. The man answered her, Our life for yours, if you utter not this our business, and it shall be when the Lord hath given us the land that we'll deal kindly and truly with thee. You see what has happened? She not only believed it, she's acting upon that belief. She heard it, she believed it, and then she acted upon it. That's salvation, friends. When you hear the gospel, what Christ has done for you, then you trust him as your Savior. 
And you have to believe it if you're accepting facts. That is, you know that it is a fact of history, but it's meaningless until you trust Christ yourself. So this woman trusted the fact that God was going to give them that land. She turned to God by faith. The harlot Rahab perished not with them that believe not when she received the spies in peace. Now, may I say this? When God destroys Jericho, remember, God's not wrong in doing it. He's not destroying poor, helpless people that had no opportunity. They've just had 420 years. They've just had 40 years. God was having his people out there marking time in the desert to see where these people had come to God. And I've repeated again, if the mayor of the city of Jericho had wanted to turn to God, he could have turned to God and been saved. In fact, the whole city could have been spared if they'd believed God. God says that he has given his Son to the world, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish. Don't forget that. You and I are lost sinners until we've been saved. And until then, why, Christ stands as the Savior, and it's what you do with him that'll determine your eternal destiny. What a picture we have here in this incident. Now, I turn just to the last verse of this chapter. The spies went back and reported. Notice what they reported. They said unto Joshua, Truly the Lord hath delivered unto our hands all the land. You see, they're going in. It's not a question now to see whether they should go in. They're going in. For even all the inhabitants of the land do faint because of us. They got that report, you see, from Rahab the harlot. Now we come to chapter 3, and we see the crossing of the Jordan River. And I have a little book entitled, Have You Crossed Over Jordan? In it, it also has another message from the book of Joshua, and it's A.I. and I. And we are going to see that when we get to it. They cross over the Jordan River. Now, I ask the question, have you crossed over Jordan? Somebody said, well, I didn't know I was supposed to. And my answer to that is, yes, you're called upon to cross Jordan, but not the literal Jordan. And this, by the way, is quite interesting. Verse 1 of chapter 3, And Joshua rose early in the morning, and they removed from Chittim and came to Jordan, and he and all the children of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. And it came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host, and they commanded the people, saying, When ye see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then ye shall remove from your place and go after it. And they were to cross over the Jordan River. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never felt like God was talking to me when he said, rise, go over this Jordan. That's the command he's given to this man, Joshua, and to the children of Israel. But he never gave it to me. I've crossed the Jordan River. In fact, I crossed it two or three times. But I didn't cross it because of this command. There's a great spiritual lesson here for us, and I want you to see it because it's without doubt one of the greatest truths that we have in the entire Word of God, and it's right here. And I want you to see it because we are seeing something happen. First of all, the way they crossed the Jordan River was different than the way they crossed the Red Sea. You'll recall when they crossed the Red Sea, Moses went down and smote the waters with his rod, judgment, you see. But here, the ark, is to go before, and the priests now to carry it. The family of Kohath carried the ark, in fact, the other articles of furniture. But now the priests are to carry it. And they're to carry it down to the edge of the Jordan River and stand in the river with their feet wet. And what was to happen? Well, the Jordan River would open up for them, and we'll see how it opened up. And the ark now is to move forward a great space between the people and the ark. And will you notice what it says, verse 4, Yet there shall be a space between you and it about 2,000 cubits. Well, that would be about 3,000 feet, you see. And that's a pretty good distance. And come not near unto it, that ye may know 
the way by which ye must go, for ye have not passed this way heretofore. And what was to take place? Well, the ark carried by the priests go down into the water. Now, will you look at the meaning of all of this? The ark is mentioned here. I think I've counted in this chapter eight times the ark is mentioned. The ark is the one that went down into the water, carried by the priests. And what happened when it was carried down into the water? Well, here's what happened. Verse 15, And as they that bear the ark were come unto Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water, for Jordan overfloweth all his banks all the time of harvest. This was the spring of the year, and it was the flood time. They have a rainy season there as we have here. And in that day, they had what was known as the early and the latter rains. The latter rains came in the spring season, and they were the most abundant of all the rains. The Jordan River was at flood stage. And actually, the people on the west side of Jordan in the land proper felt like that they had several days and probably several weeks, maybe, that they would not have any danger because the children of Israel, they felt, could not cross over at flood stage. But they had also this lurking fear that 40 years before they'd crossed the Red Sea and they didn't know what might happen at this particular time. Now, notice what did happen, that when the priest brought the ark, and my friend, that ark speaks of Christ. That's very important to see. The ark speaks of Christ. And verse 16 says that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon a heap very far from the city Adam, that is, beside Zaratan, and those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people passed over right against Jericho. Now, they crossed over at Jericho, and the waters, though, were dammed up way back up at Adam. Now, where is Adam? Well, I don't know where it is. I've never been able to locate it. And as far as I know, there was no town by the name of Adam. What does it mean, the city Adam? Well, that's the city that all of us came from, by the way. That is Adam, the father of the human family. And by Adam came death. And all the way back to Adam, why, what is taking place here represents the death and resurrection of Christ. And what Christ did on the cross not only reaches forward 1,900 years to where you and I are today, but it reaches back to Adam at the very beginning of the human family. That's the picture that we have. The American Revised Version translates it a great way off at Adam, back to Adam, you see. And then we're told, and the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan, and all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. Now, you see, it was the ark that opened up the way that led across the Jordan River. That ark speaks of Christ. And all the way back to Adam, we find that the curse reached and it was removed that far back. Also, in chapter 4 now, we have the memorial stones. For instance, I'll begin reading there. It came to pass when all the people were clean past over Jordan that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe of man, and command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones, and ye shall carry them over and you'll leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. Now, those twelve stones were taken over to the west side of Jordan. They were made of memorial stones, by the way. And now we are told also that, verse 8, "...and the children of Israel did so as Joshua commanded, took up the twelve stones out of the midst of Jordan, as the Lord spake unto Joshua." according to the number of the tribe of the children of Israel, carried them over with them unto the place where they lodged and laid them down. Now, 
they not only took 12 stones out of Jordan, put them on the other side, and those stones, by the way, speak of the resurrection of Christ. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests stood, that bare the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they were there unto this day. That is, at the time Joshua wrote that, those stones were down there. They were taken from the west bank of the Jordan. They were put down in the river where the priests had stood. That speaks of the death of Christ. That ark speaks of Christ. Now, how did they cross over? They crossed over by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those stones that were to be seen on the other side reveals God's power. They speak of grace, that Christ is today at the right hand of God. And then these other stones, unseen stones, they are the stones that were not seen. They were there, though, in Joshua's day. God sees these, and you and I reckon on these. And that speaks actually of the law. Christ died for us because you and I stood guilty before God. And those stones speak of his death, and the waters of death passed over. The crossing of the Jordan River does not represent the believer's death. It represents Christ's death, and you and I appropriate it and enter in today into the heavenlies, and ultimately it'll bring us into heaven only by the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. Paul said, This is the gospel which I preached unto you, that which you heard, that which you trust, that which will save you. And friends, it's only that today. Now, it's through the death and resurrection of Christ. And you and I, by faith now, we cross over that Jordan, and we enter the Canaan, we enter the heavenlies, where we live down here and lay hold to spiritual blessings. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is. Now, I'm mentioning this book, Have You Crossed Over Jordan? I've just touched these things today, but it is available for those that support our program. We generally mention it at the end of the study of a book, but since we're here, I'm mentioning it to you today. This man, Joshua, did something that's very meaningful for us today, and it became meaningful for them, of course. They took out 12 stones out of the Jordan, the bed of the Jordan River. They took them to the West Bank, and they put them up as a memorial that the coming generations might know what had happened. Then they took 12 stones that were on the bank and put them down in the water. Now, the twelve stones that they put down in the water speak actually of the death of Christ. The unseen stones, God sees these, we reckon on them. And they speak of the law, but the law you and I could not keep in the waters of death. The law brought death. It was a ministration of death. But Christ is born that judgment death for you and me on the cross. Now, he has come forth. In newness of life, and those stones that came forth, they speak of God's power and the grace of God. For Christ is at the right hand of God today, and we come to him. Now, it is by this that you and I are enabled to enter today into Canaan, that is, into the heavenlies, and to live for God in these days in which we live. Now, we have here... That's stated in Romans. This is a great truth for us. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. That is, when we came by faith and trusted him, we were identified. We were put into the body of Christ. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, by identification into death. When he died, we died that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, the only way you can go in and possess spiritual blessings, Paul made it clear in Ephesians. He says, he beseech, it's not a command, but he says, I beseech you as the prisoner of the Lord that you walk worthy of the high calling 
by which you're called. And today, that is an humble walk. It's to walk in the unity of the Spirit. Now, when a child of God does this, meets God's demands, then these great spiritual blessings are ours today. But the crossing of the Jordan is not the death of the believer. We don't stand on Jordan's stormy banks. He did, and death and crossed over, and he did for you and me. What a message is there, my beloved. Now, if you'll notice, verse 19, the people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. And he spoke unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. Certainly, if you carry the spiritual lesson on out as it is here, what you do would be to teach your children the gospel. That's the business, I think, of parents, to give the children the gospel. And there's no privilege like the privilege that a parent has of leading a child to a saving knowledge of Christ. My wife had the privilege of leading our daughter to the Lord. I did not. She was the one. And we believe that parents are the ones to do that. Now, will you notice, "...then ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over." that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. And he did it for your benefit and mine, for the people of the earth. There's a message here for you and me today, and it's a very wonderful message, by the way.